Signal. Presented by Euphemed. Last time on The Signal, we chatted with Tim Rothschild, a shamanic healer, a mystic. I think we asked more new questions than figured anything out, but I think that's all right. And on this edition, I'll be asking more new questions, this time to writer Sam Knight. He wrote this book called The Premonitions Bureau, and in it, he basically takes a look at the work of psychiatrist John Barker, who created a network of sort of psychic visionaries in the 1960s in Britain after an incredible tragedy. There were a lot of people looking to find any way possible for this kind of tragedy not to happen ever again. Could they do more? Well, this idea of could they do more, it, it, it galvanized this psychiatrist who said, yes, maybe there is a way we can do more and maybe we can tap into psychic abilities, premonition to develop this. So there was this really whole great mid-century British psychic thriller happening that not a lot of people know about. And so this book, The Premonitions Bureau, really describes that. A a fun conversation. I think you are going to really enjoy it, especially if you have any familiarity with things like Project Stargate or J.B. Rhine or the Monroe Institute or any of the other domestic stateside studies widespread experimentation on psychic phenomenon and psychic abilities. Okay, so for the last five days, I've been eating nothing but soft food. I've been on nearly a liquid diet. I can't eat any more applesauce or pudding. And it's because I finally, in my adulthood, had my wisdom teeth taken out. So for what it's worth, it wasn't very painful. I wasn't in too much discomfort getting stuff stuck in sort of your wisdom teeth holes has been really frustrating. But as of tonight, I ate my first hard food and I will chalk that up as a tremendous win. So you are at the benefit of listening to me in nirvana, in bliss. I think what occurs to me after doing this is that so many of us take for granted our health and our well-being and how special daily life can be when you're just feeling good. When you enter in these situations where someone you love or you yourself are stricken by something that is uncomfortable or painful or a really threat to your well-being, it can shift your perspective. Even when doing routine dental surgery or maintenance in those ways, it can still remind you how special all of this is right now, how special it is to be a conscious being living and walking and loving among the earth. So what I choose to take from this experience is appreciating those that are around me, the the, the quest that I'm on right now. And if anything, it made me sort of feel more indentured to doing a good job and buckling down on some of the things that maybe I procrastinated on or maybe that I could push a little harder on. I think it's created a little bit of ambition in me that is always there, but maybe I push back a little bit. So it'll be really interesting to see how much further I can push that along. Or (laughs) after this high dose of ibuprofen and amoxicillin, I just kind of come back to earth. So I'll be in Mount Pleasant, Michigan for a live podcast interview at Mid-Michigan Paracon on November 4th and 5th. You can get tickets now at midmichiganparacon.com. This will be the first ever convention type of environment that I've ever been a guest at. And so this is brand new, but I think what we'll be able to accomplish is a great sort of euphemet vibe to a live interview, a live conversation, whatever it may turn out to be. I know there's other really great guests there. I know Tenny is there. Maybe it'll just be me and Tenny waxing poetically about things. I haven't asked him about this. Maybe he'll hear this and maybe, or maybe he won't. Maybe he doesn't want to do that. <laughs> or maybe I'll force him to. That's what you do to people, right? You just bend their arm. <laughs> you say, you're going to talk to me on, uh, on stage in front of people. 
And I think that's how this works. I, it's going to be my first time. So you can't blame me if I don't know the intricacies of this sort of thing. I'm just going to have fun. So you'll probably hear me talk about this several other times before it happens. And maybe I'll even add more of these. I don't know. We'll see. But I'll be in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, November 4th and 5th. Check out the Mid-Michigan Paracon. We're getting closer to releasing the Whitley Conversation. Look for that in our next transmission of The Signal. But for now, Sam Knight is a staff writer at The New Yorker based in London. His work has also appeared in The Guardian, The Financial Times, Harper's, and Grantland. Some of the more popular work has covered subjects such as the plans for the death of the queen, sandwiches, and late capitalism. This is my conversation with journalist writer Sam Knight about the Premonitions Bureau, a true account of death foretold. First of all, Sam, your book, Premonitions Bureau, A True Account of Death Foretold. It's really great, man. Um, (laughs) Thank you. And and what's fascinating, and I and I love to speak to journalists and ask them this question: How did this topic? How did this story show up for you? Yeah, I mean, just I'll just tell you, and we can make of it kind of what we will. I mean, this <laughs> I came across this story because I, you know, I'm a, I'm a magazine writer. I, I I write for the New Yorker. That's what I do. It this when when this kind of happened. This was before I I wrote for the magazine. I normally have like a big difficult story going on in the background. This is the first book that I've written, but during like my time as a, a magazine writer, I just normally have something kind of huge and difficult kind of going on. And I'd finished one of these stories. And I think I was, I think I was in, I think I was in a, a rut, but I was also kind of open to finding the next one. And I got an email uh, one of those kind of emails that you don't even know you're signed up to, inviting me to <laughs> to to uh, you know there's a short story competition, mm-hmm. and I'm a you know I'm I'm a nonfiction writer, but I think I was like you know what maybe I should write a short story, maybe that would like get me get me going, and so and I had this idea to write a short story, and the idea of the short story would would be the form of a, a letter um, written by someone who'd had an incredibly vivid, inexplicable premonition. Mm. Um, of 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 a disaster, and they would and they they would know stuff that there's just like no way that they could know, and they're writing like an earnest like letter of warning mm. about this thing that they just knew was going to happen, but they were sending it knowing that it wouldn't be believed because you know how can you have a premonition or how, how can you see something before it before it happens? And I had this idea to write this this short story in the form of like a letter of warning. Um, and I think because basically I'm a nonfiction writer rather than a fiction writer, my response to this was to go to the library and order up a great big stack of books about <laughs> premonitions. Sure. Uh, yeah. And like the, the research process for my fictional thing, like I never wrote the thing, um, but I but I ordered up this great big stack of books in the British Library, which is where I do a lot of my work. And there were these amazing kind of collections, chiefly end of the 19th century, early 20th century kind of spiritualist collections of, 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 of mainly sort of 19th century recordings of people having premonitions generally of a death, which then like came, came yeah. to pass. But in amongst this like stack, there was a later book. And I'm pretty sure I, it really bugs me that I can't like definitively remember, but it was, I'm pretty sure it was like an Arthur C. Clarke compendium of like strange 20th century, you know, happenings. And in it, there was a paragraph about this thing called the premonition spirit. First of all, I just couldn't believe the the name of this right. experiment. It was like, yeah, it was it's too, too good. good. It yeah, was, it's, it's too good. good. <laughs> it's too good. It's too good. And so then my, my second thought was like, oh, well, it's, it's great. It's fun, but it's too good. Therefore, <laughs> it, it will have to be like a hokey thing yeah. like that existed for like a few weeks and was just kind of a stunt and it like ended up, you know, it was kind of bogus and it fell apart. And, but, but, it, but it didn't take me long to, to find that the, the two people who'd been behind this experiment were, you know, were John Barker, um, the deputy superintendent of a, a a large mental hospital outside Shrewsbury in the west of England. And mm. the other guy was a guy called Peter Fairley, who was the science editor of the London Evening Standard newspaper, who presented the moon landings on British television. Oh, wow. And, and so, so, so I was like, oh, 
oh, you know, oh, wait, you know, here's the, I'm reading the obituary of Barker in the British Medical Journal. He's published in the Lancet and the American Journal of Medicine. And he's wow. kind of a magpie-like figure doing research in lots of different places, but it's clearly kind of in 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 the intellectual mix yeah. in kind of progressive psychiatry during the 1960s, which is obviously like a time of kind of radical change and progress. And he has like a proper job in a proper hospital. And and then the other guy is, is Peter Fairley, who again is a name... You know, Barker was never widely known, but fairly, you know, was was a well-known scientific popularizer in the 1960s. And I was like, hey, wait, these these are these are these are people with they have careers, they have reputations, they have something to they have something to lose by getting involved in an experiment which, you know, to to most people in 2022, you know, might sound far-fetched so it was a couple of paragraphs like in this book and i was like wait i and i and i just had to like keep pulling at the thread keep pulling at the thread and i kept expecting i kept expecting the thread to run out you know uh-huh. what i mean or or the thing to just crumble in on itself and to be like ah eh. but but you know by by great kind of good fortune largely because of surviving cardboard boxes in people's attics you know the the, the story the story they're like they kept on they kept on being something you know they kept on they kept on something being there yeah so barker was you know you know was a, was a psychiatrist he was born in 1924 so he's sort of born in the in the years after the first world war to a kind of prosperous um you know quite conservative christian south london family his mm. father was his father was a car dealer his mother was kind of uh descended from you know vicars in the in the in the, in the east of england um and he and i and i and i mention this because he's you know he's he's a recognizable mid century British intellectual. And what I and what I mean by that is that by the time he's practicing as a psychiatrist in the 1950s and 1960s, he is very much on the side of modern medicine. You know, the first meaningful antipsychotic drugs go on prescription in the UK in 1955. Mm-hmm. This is really the first time that people with serious mental illness and delusions and schizophrenia have been able to receive, you know, pharmaceutical kind of medical treatment you know this is a time of like rapid reform and like taking the locks off the doors (laughs) thinking about psychotherapy you know shelton hospital where he worked about half the patients received there about eight eight hundred and fifty patients there received no treatment of any kind whatsoever Mm. and nothing they were just they were just locked up um and barker was on the side of a generation of psychiatrists who were trying to change that and really experimenting in pretty much all different directions you know with one of barker's you know great kind of medical interest was something called aversion therapy which is pretty you know crude and mechanical to to our ears now but that is yeah. giving people electric shocks or kind of nausea inducing drugs to try and wean them off addictive behaviors um and and it's quite mechanical it doesn't say it doesn't sound great to be honest but nonetheless there's, there's this it kind of there's been this such a like dramatic and exciting time of, right i mean of, in the of, forefront of, of so of many things stuff and they you know britain's mental health system at the time mental hospitals was about 60 large county asylums that dotted the countryside and the british secretary of state of health in 1961 said we are going to demolish these in 10 years time we are getting rid of these things people are going to be treated in the community you know so it's genuinely a time of kind of you know revolutionary kind of change in mental health obviously it didn't all happen but that was the that was the atmosphere right but on the other hand you know barker's father served you know, in the trenches during the First World War, where he had supernatural experiences, like many other soldiers who fought in the First World War. And Mm -hmm. Barker was interested in ghosts. And, you know, when he was a student at Cambridge University, he would go on ghost hunting expeditions. He was a member of the Society for Psychical Research, which is kind of the main British kind of uh, organization for investigating the paranormal. He had, you know, 
he kept a crystal ball on his desk. You know, this was and and wow. and, and so he was a divi- you know he was a divided person, a divided kind of mind between the kind of the possibilities of of modern science and medicine and something you know rooted in a kind of earlier pretty large british tradition of the occult the supernatural and psychical research and these and these two yeah. things just rubbed rubbed alongside inside him on a daily basis and i think as a as a writer and as a reporter you're just inherently drawn to like unresolved people do you know what i mean who have <laughs> who have who 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 have who have a com- you know i kind of i'm I'm chewing my words a little around around I don't want to set up too much of an idea of attention here between the two mm-hmm. things because I think I think Barker thought in the form of an experiment like the Premonitions Bureau, you could unify these things and you could use this this atmosphere of of scientific progress to shed light on these profound questions of you know of the mind and and impossible things sure you know so so i I don't i don't think he 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 saw the conflict yeah but i I think you're right you know at that time there was an incredible tension Right. I mean, yeah. you were moving into this new state and they were experimenting with things that perhaps hadn't been experimented with since John D. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. He, he must that must have played a role in his experience. And yeah. maybe only in that scene was he allowed to really like sort of dive in and explore because so much of that was going on around him. Yeah, no, I think I think I think I think that's totally right, and I think you know, and to sort of drill into the the specifics, you know, the the hospital where he worked, which is this hospital called Shelton, you know, outside this town Shrewsbury, which is on the border uh, between England and Wales, it was a ba- it was a backwater, mm. um, and Barker had actually had a, a a more senior job. He'd been in charge of of one of these mental hospitals uh, in Dorset, but had had lost the job uh, and had been demoted and moved sideways and 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 was at this place which was run by there were there were four consultants there two of them were kind of older you know put out to pasture the guy in charge of the hospital was a former colonial administrator you know it's a really kind of there's nothing happening at this place but he and a younger doctor uh, uh, called David Enoch were the same age and eager for change and eager to pursue their own uh, inquiries and he, had, yeah. and he had the freedom to do he had the freedom to do that so so barker was as i as i said this kind of like roving curious ambitious guy uh, always always looking for something that he could turn into a scientific paper uh, you know there's he's, he's, a, he's there's a sense of hustle about him there's a sense of like i i i want to to push the boundaries of psychiatry and I want to, and I want to make, and I want to make a name for myself. And he's, and in 1963, he reads a report in a letter in the Lancet from some Canadian, uh, doctors, or in fact, one of them's a British doctor, but working at a very remote, uh, hospital in Labrador on the Eastern coast of Canada. And they had admitted a woman for routine surgery and she had died pretty much inexplicably after the surgery, despite there being kind of no complications and nothing going wrong. And, and it turned out that she had confided to a nurse that she knew she was going to die after this surgery. And she'd gone into shock and died. And they wrote this letter saying, and the, and the, and the, the title that the, it appeared under was, you know, scared to death. You know, was this woman uh, scared to death? And Barker this like totally connected with his 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 interests as as someone interested in 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 the supernatural but also interested in like hey what is the like the physiological like consequences of of fear or a vision or something like that like that that just was totally like in his uh in his kind of zone of interest and he wrote to the doctors and he started kind of and he put out his own call for for cases and started collecting letters and started working on a book which was called scared to death and he'd had a couple of experiences as a young doctor where he would he was treating treating a guy uh and and he said 
asked the guy who had chest pains, uh, do you think you, uh, are you afraid that you might die? And, and then the man like died in front of him. Uh, and this made an impression on a young doctor. Um, and so Barker, so Barker was in the midst of, 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 of collecting the material for this book when there was a terrible industrial accident in Wales, which is when a huge, huge heap of coal waste, um, which is kind of like very fine material, kind of like slurry, like very fine coal residue, um, was piled up on these huge heaps um, around mining villages in Wales with like no regard to topography or underwater streams or like where would be a good place to store millions and tons of coal waste. And on October 21st, 1966, one of these heaps uh, collapsed and formed a, a landslide and rushed down the mountain and buried a primary school and killed and killed 144 people. Uh, 116 of them were young children. It remains a kind of singular disaster in the British consciousness. Uh, and Barker's hospital was about 100 miles away. And on the day that it happened, he heard a news report saying that a child had escaped from the school unharmed but gone home and died of shock. And this, like, absolutely... And he... And so he got in the car the next day and he drove there to try and find out what happened to this kid, which I think tells you, you know, it tells you a lot about Barker's character in that there is a kind of, there is a slight kind of recklessness and a, and a heedlessness to him, which isn't always like understandable or particularly sympathetic. And he turns up in, and he, t- and he turns up in Abervan in this village, uh, which has been, you know, pulverized, you know, in all senses by this disaster and finds that people are still digging out the bodies. Like it's impossible to kind of make, make the kind of go door to door or as a kind of alien English psychiatrist, you know, uh, trying to, trying to find out what happened by this boy to this boy, but he, but he hangs around and while he's there, he, he begins to collect stories. And these stories are of people having dreams and visions of this disaster, uh, particularly among the children. And there were kind of two cases that were kind of particularly, you know, shocking. And one was a boy who who drew, seemed to, to basically draw the disaster uh, like the night before it happened and went to school and was um, and was buried in the school. Uh, that was only like found among his possessions like a few weeks later. And the other was a girl who refused to go to school and said, look, I, 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 mommy, I can't go to school because I had a dream. And in my dream, the, the school wasn't there. Something black came all over it. And her mother and her mother said like, don't, you know, don't be so silly and sent her off to school. And she was buried in the school as well. And there were other strange kind of coincidences, as they like often are after like one of these like sensationally appalling disasters. You know, little decisions that save people's lives and end other people's lives. And, Bar- and Barker became kind of fascinated by these accounts. And so it's really, it's really it, I mean, I give this kind of backstory about scared to death because it just sort of that was the research that he was doing, and it and it and it's where his it's how. It's like his primal interest in premonitions, if you see what I mean, is is from that kind of is from that realm. And he calls a contact who is Peter Fairley at Evening Standard, who he's met the year before, um, and says, "Look, will you put out a call for premonitions?" And so, a week after the disaster, an article runs in the Evening Standard newspaper in London, which has circulation of six hundred thousand people. You know, did you have a premonition of the Abavan disaster? It's kind of, it's a week after. I mean, you can see it there in the newsprint. It's, it, it tells you about the kind of intellectual climate of 1960s Britain that that was, yeah, why not? Let's do it. That's on the science pages of the Evening Standard. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's, un, it's like unthinkable to sort of imagine, you know, the science pages of like the LA Times, you know, did you have a premonition of, you know, the tsunami, the tsunami or whatever? And this call goes out. And the letters and the letters start coming into to the Evening Standard and then get passed on to Barker, and that's October. And by January, he and Fairley have come up with this idea of like, hey, these premonitions are kind of spectacular, and they they collected about 
25 really good ones, i.e. they'd been witnessed by other people before the thing happened. And, you know, there was some plausibility to them and they had a degree, you know, a degree of seeming like the Aberfan disaster. And they said, well, look, these are amazing, but they're all reported after the fact, as are most uncanny, weird premonitions. Let's do, let's do an experiment where we roll the thing forward, where we just say, send in your, send in your premonitions, whatever they are, and we will log them over the course of a year and we will compare them to actual events and see how many of these things, these kind of untethered premonitions, like actually, actually come to pass. And that is the, and that's the, that's the germ of, of the Premonitions Bureau, which is, which sort of goes live on, you know, on January the 3rd, 1967. So as you, as you were exploring this, the, the idea of a premonition was, was that, you know, sort of the exploration, was that new for you? I, I know you were interested in incorporating in that, you know, sort of a short fiction piece that you never wrote. Uh, but, but uh, you know, tell me a little bit about if there's an interest in that, uh, in, in, you know, for you, and if you could sort of define a little bit of a definition for that for us. Yeah, sure. So I, I think I, just, I have to be completely honest and say, no, like this is, this is a new, yeah. this is a new field for me. This is not like connecting with some like deep inherent interest in these right. questions in me. I think that the reason why I was drawn to this story and this material were, you know, were the people, were the time, were the fact that this absolutely happened. You know, I'm a, yeah. you know, I'm a, I'm a reporter. I'm a magazine writer. You kind of, you, I, and it, and as I kind of learned more and, and could, and, and, and could see that there was enough material to write here, it became increasingly important to me to write this story like I would write any other story. Do you see mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. It, it, mm -hmm. it seems to me, you know, I, I first encountered the kind of two paragraph version of the book that I wrote in a, in an anthology of tales to make you believe, right? There was mm. a, there was, there was a reason why this was being put in front of you. It wasn't being put in front of you simply because it was interesting or because it happened. It was because, um, you need, you needed to believe some larger, some larger truth behind it. Right. And likewise, the other way of telling this story is to say, ah, oh, isn't this like a beautiful example of confirmation bias and the way that the right. human brain will, will make patterns that they aren't there, like move on to the next subject. Yeah. They, they, it seemed to me that these stories are generally presented as part of some larger, like a metaphysical argument. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I don't do that kind of writing or reporting. I like, you know, it's important to me to, to write about characters and to try and evoke places and things and as best as we can, like describe reality and just yeah. something that happened. So, so that, you know, I've become that because this story like strays into the supernatural and out again, it became really important to me to, to, to present this as, you know, really as a, as, as a piece of as a piece of history, hopefully kind of evocative and fun and weird, but like, yeah. but as a piece of, as a piece of history, you know, that's why it was refreshing in how you wrote it, because there's already so much material out there that is straining itself, trying to get mm, people yeah. to believe in something. Right. Yeah. And it's like, well, you kind of, you know, enough of that. It's kind of hack at yeah, this yeah. point. So yeah. <laughs> it's refreshing in the way you approached it. I'm gonna, but I will give you my version of a definition of, of, of a premonition, which I yes. think is a really important question and, and was something kind of in my mind. And I think the, the definition that, that I, that I have and I, and, and stayed with me while I was writing the book is, is that you, you know, right. You know, this isn't, this isn't just like, huh, maybe that, 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 that. or like, what's your prediction or what do you feel? It's like, I don't know how I know, but I, but I know that it, it has the quality of or, of already having happened. Do you know yes, what I mean? It's like this yes. is this is this is fact. This is fact. This has occurred, even though it hasn't occurred. Right. And it's and, and 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 while there are examples in the book of like fun occurrences where this happens, generally 
it's 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 a grim feeling and it's a grim feeling generally because it's it's a feeling of foreboding but also it's like well i i can't know do you know what i mean it's it's not just it's it's not just that the news is bad it's just the fact that you know that's not good right yeah. because you because you can't know and and what are you going to do with this information because as i like referred to right in the beginning like no one's no one's going to, where do you put this? Like there isn't a, there isn't a place to, to put impossible knowledge. Yeah. Uh, you just, you just have to kind of hold it right. uh, and then, and then, and then see what happens. And so I think, I think that's, that's, it, you know, I don't know whether that's a narrow definition or not, but I, I think it's important to try and, to try and, try and define this experience as, as, as uncomfortable, but like more importantly, this is, like factual you just you yeah. just know yeah. yeah yeah well well your definition is great because listen anyone who is listening to this program has heard all the other versions of that definition <laughs> so it's yeah, yeah completely appropriated uh, appropriate <laughs> um <laughs> there's one there's one there's one moment there's one moment in the in the book where he um one of the people sending in a premonition describes it as like forgetting his wife's birthday. Do you know what I mean? He like oh, woke yes. up and he was like, Oh yes. God, it's, it's like, it's today. I forgot. It's the, it's a, like that feeling of like total yeah. certainty. Uh, yeah. Which I think is also like a nice way to describe it. Yeah. Everyone has a version of that feeling. I, I, you know, mm, would assume. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, you know, um, did you discover, you know, sort of official letterhead, did you discover? I did. A, a I did. Week? I did. Yeah. Yeah. I did. Yeah. I found. I found. Yeah. I found some. I found. Yeah. I did. I. I. I never found like the holy grail, which was you know the files. Uh, I believe that they went to the dump. Uh, in I think frustratingly oh about God. about about ten years ago. Oh um, no! <laughs> I know. I know. Um, I mean, you know, as 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 a. You know, as a reporter, it was just, you know, I worked on this for a long time, like in the background without really telling anybody about it, like, but certainly boring my partner about it, but not yeah, like, right. but not like telling any kind of editor about it. Um, just because it was so scanty trying to kind of chase down these, uh, chase down these details. But yes. I kind of, you know, two or three key things and kind of went my way. And, and a really important one was, uh, the, a woman called, um, Kathleen Middleton, who is called Miss Middleton in the book because she was known as Miss Middleton. She was a music teacher and a ballet teacher. Mm. And she died in 1999, uh, childless with about a dozen cats in her house in North London. And I found her will and her will named her executor. And this was all, you know, 23 years ago, or it wasn't at the time, it was about kind of uh, 15, 16 years ago. And I just called the, you know, I called the number. Nice woman picks up. Uh, and she, this woman was called Christine, was a pupil of hers in the piano school in the 1950s and 1960s. And after Miss Middleton had died in 1999, Christine, I mean, it's just unbelievable. It is true. You know, she spent a year clearing her house. She would just, you know, on a spare afternoon, would just go over and just do a few more bags and do a few more bags. She spent a year clearing this house. Um, and in that process of clearing, had just kept the right letters, the right photographs, the right, and she is one of the key kind of contributors oh to the to, to the Premonitions Bureau. And she wrote a memoir, uh, and in the memoir, she kind of kept some of her predictions, and she kept Barker's replies. And you know that that that's that's what I that's what I mean about the book being just built on these surviving kind of uh, scraps of newspaper, and and the other kind of key key woman in the experiment was a woman called Jennifer Preston and she was Peter Fairley's assistant at the Evening Standard. So she was the person who took the phone calls and took the letters and put them in this array of 
filing cabinets under these different kind of headings. You know, the, a, a vision or a warning would come in and it was a plane crash, a, ra- a train crash. Was it the world family? Was it to do with space? You know, was it nuclear? You know, these were the kind of the main preoccupations of, of people's kind of dreams and nightmares in, in the 60s. And, and so Jennifer Preston, you know, a, a, a thing that just kept recurring to me when I was doing the reporting and the writing for the book was, you know, you know, Ghostbusters, where they finally they've moved into the old fire station, of course, and they get and they get their first serious call, yeah. and it's and it's the secretary at the desk, and she puts down the phone and she shouts, "We got one!" and like hits the yeah. bell, like that's <laughs> Gen- that's <laughs> that's Jennifer Preston. Amazing. Uh, she's like she's like she she like she could speak Latin fluently. She would like she would like when the kind of bricks needed repairing on her house she would hire scaffolding and fix her own house she was just like such a cool person um and she uh <laughs> she was the sort of like the sergeant major of the uh of the of the, of the bureau well with an exciting job i mean <laughs> i can't imagine <laughs> yeah. that would be so great i, I mean I, I guess in a way that's kind of what i do with uh, this program a little bit <laughs> John Barker and company, they've established the Bureau. Uh, they've been soliciting individuals to, to call into this line and, yeah. you know, let them know if they're having this, these sensations, if, if they're mm-hmm. having something that they would qualify, <clears throat> yeah. you know, as a premonition. Now, how long did it take before they were able to corroborate some of these incidents into an actual event? Did they have a, a first significant hit yeah, so there was, so among, so the Abavan kind of uh, disaster is October 1966, and they put out this call then, and on, and of those people that, that write in, Barker writes to them all again, saying, look, we're doing this experiment, you know, feel free, you know, I'd love you to contribute. And there's a small subset of the people who contributing you know, who, who, who had visions of Abavan, who, who, who said, look, I, I get this a lot. And, and often it's accompanied by physical uh, symptoms as well as just an image or a mm. voice or something like that. And Barker was particularly kind of interested in, in this group. And there are seven, seven people in that group. And, and two of those, Miss Middleton and another man called Alan Hencher, uh, who was a switchboard operator for the post office, um, became kind of probably the, the two outstanding, you know, seers or percipients, as as Barker called them. Uh, and in March 1967, um, Hensher called Barker early one morning and gave, you know, quite, a, you know, a vivid uh, description of a plane crash in which he said 123 and then he corrected himself 124 people would die uh and it would come in low over mountains and there would be a lights flashing you know it's kind of you know it gave this description of, of, of a plane crash and then mm. about a month later uh there was a plane crash into a mountain uh on the island of cyprus in which 124 people were killed. It was. It turned out to be 126 because there are two survivors who died later in hospital. But nonetheless, that was you know the news headlines. You know, 124 people killed oh. in an air crash. And at the time, that was you know the sixth worst aviation accident in history. So it was just a major news event yeah. happening a month later. And that and that felt like the first really kind of palpable connection between you know a premonition that had been sent into bureau and something that 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 had occurred oh my gosh what do you feel like the bureau's response to that was at that time did you have any reports about how encouraged or how excited or you know sort of it seems yeah. like a sort of a macabre thing to be excited about uh right yeah, well, they, there's they, 124 it, people but uh yeah no it like it ran in like the evening standards like coverage of the of the of the disaster it's like right there like in amongst it uh i think they were you know i think they were elated um and you know i'm gonna you know this is a because it's a key 
moment in the book, that day, Fairley and Henshaw, Fairley and Barker are both trying to call Alan Henshaw, the guy who made this prediction, but he's but he's asleep because he works nights at the post office and they can't they can't get him on the phone mm. um, that day. And then at one o'clock in the morning, Henshaw calls Barker at work and Barker's obviously not there. And so the hospital called him at home and say, look, we've got this guy on the phone. He's, he's, he's sounding stressed. He needs to talk to you. And Barker's like, okay, put him on. And I guess Barker thinks that they, they're going to talk about the plane crash. But instead, Hencher is saying, um, look, I'm really worried about you. I've had this terrible feeling about you all day. Uh, I think you're going to come to some harm. And oh my God. he's, and he starts asking Barker these questions, you know, he's like, do you, you know, what color is your car? Do you have a gas supply? He starts asking him these, these questions and Barker's responding, you know, and he's saying, look, do you think, am I, am I in danger? And Andrew's like, yes, you are. Um, and so, so, so it's this key, totally chilling moment in the bureau where you've got someone who, if you're, inclined to think that this is possible has seen a disaster before it's un- yeah. unfolded and and is and is now telling you some you know telling you that you're you know that you could be next yeah so it's a kind of yeah so, oh so, so it was i know it's, it's a totally <laughs> what, and, what, you know barker what a bittersweet moment yeah. for him he thinks here we go we've got some sort of confirmation this is data that's coming in that's you know substantiating what this whole experiment is about and the person that is responsible for that is now calling you as some form of grim reaper uh, to bear the bad news of hey if you believed me then well i'm sorry you got to believe me now and it's not good news that's incredible my reactions to this were naturally to be somewhat alarmed yeah. I found it a little difficult to get off to sleep again and have, of course, decided to take extra care while driving. It would be wrong to say that I was not frightened by a prediction of this nature. Yeah, so he, Barker the next morning, <laughs> dictates this incredible four-page memo about how trippy and exciting and unsettling uh, this is. And, yeah. you know, when I when I found that, memo in the archives of the society for psychical research it was you know you're in a library so you can't like scream but i was yeah. like it's like <laughs> it'll never i'm sure it'll never happen again it was just this it was like damn that's you know this is this this is this you know this is this this is the story right here just the way yep. that this experiment which on the one hand is a, a a vast kind of stab in the dark yeah then turns in on itself and becomes acutely personal yeah uh, and he's and he's and he's you know wrapped up in it boy you'd have to carry it for a while too because you know th- yeah. these things people are having these premonitions right and then they're happening maybe a month later a year later yeah. whenever yeah yeah, right? yeah. yeah. so it's, yeah. he must have just carried did he carry that around with him for the rest of his life yeah he did Gee whiz. well uh that's the thanks you get for digging into this <laughs> stuff i guess yeah <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, so whatever happened, to, what happened to Barker, and what happened to the bureau? I'm listen. I've given, I've given, I've given away the twist. I don't know. I don't want to give away. Like, okay, no problem. The, the, let's, the, let's get. Let's. Yes. Understandable. Well, I think you've piqued everyone's interest in this. It's an incredible story. Anyone that is familiar and excited about psychical research, for example, uh, are, are really going to love this because there's, you know, parallels with some other programs here in the United States. There's uh, parallels well, yeah. in some of this thinking with with modern psychical research and even some quantum science, right? Like yeah. some of this stuff is no, getting 100%. super trippy. Uh, I, I and And, you know, yeah, just a couple of like, things on that you know barker visits the us in may 1968 and gives lectures at the the maimonides uh, uh dream research laboratory mm. in brooklyn uh and and there are you know there are like clear parallels with you know with with other kind of experiments of this kind and there's a, a central premonitions registry is set up in the US basically on exactly the same on exactly the same basis hmm. uh, set up by a guy called Jim Nelson at who was an executive at the New York Times uh, and people were encouraged to like send in their predictions it 
I'm going to kind of give a small hint as to what happened in the books because Barker is not around for that long. There, there isn't the, um, there isn't the kind of intellectual force. I don't think behind it in the U.S. So it just kind of, it kind of lingers on into the early '80s. Kind of the subject of kind of various slightly kind of lurid articles over the next kind of 15 years, but it doesn't seem to have a true kind of experimentalist um, behind it. Um, and then in terms of kind of, and then in terms of kind of contemporary stuff, yet there it's, you know, the, the parapsychology kind of research along these lines that I am aware of has, has seemed to sort of take place at the kind of micro instant. Do you know what I mean? Like, can mm-hmm. you, can people, are people having inexplicable emotional reactions to cards or photographs before they're being shown them do you see what i mean it's kind of it's concentrating on that kind of that very that very kind of fluid moment of 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 perception but really trying to kind of prove that there's something going on at a kind of sub sub second level do you know what i mean like that that seems to be where where people have sort of tried to make a kind of hard scientific case for this stuff i think the thing that i which I find kind of interesting, like up to a point. It doesn't really speak to me of what seems to be the kind of a deep human need and like faculty for prophecy, which seems to be a, a much yeah. kind of larger, more interesting kind of social question. Yeah. Um, and then, the, and then, sorry, I'm just kind of rambling here. The other thing I was going to say, which I, which I find kind of really. Fascinating is the way that something as outlandish as this starts to blur into really interesting writing and research into this idea of the predictive brain, which is a kind of an idea in neuroscience about how mm. the brain is just continually, continually predicting. It's like it's like it's it is a prediction machine yeah. to try to try and use partial bits of information and memories and expectations to to figure out what's going to happen next so so this is kind of <laughs> impossible thinking but it's also it's what we like it's what we it's what we lean towards well listen um, isn't it also of, yeah isn't it also interesting that you know we're developing all of this new ai with algorithms that yeah. are based on prediction and you start looking at some of that and you go like oh wait this is kind of familiar oh yeah this is like our brains that do this every day <laughs> yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> So there, yeah, there is this web, there is this like sort of web of, of, of pattern prediction mm. of, of diagnosis of, of, of creative, uh, in intuition that seems to take yeah. place all within the same space or, or maybe even somewhere else. Um, you know, one of the, did you, have you ever talked to Rupert Sheldrake? You know what? I have never talked. I, I was literally, I was looking at one of his books today. I've never, I know I've, I've no, I, I'm in awe of the Sheldrakes, but yeah. I've never, but I, but I know I've never, I've never chatted with him. He's fascinating. I've had an opportunity yeah. to speak with him once and mm. you know, uh, his work with the global consciousness project is yeah. so fascinating. Right. But yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of like interesting intersections. I think people that follow this work will find within the premonitions bureau and, and real quick, is there a preferred place for people to order your book or find your work? Um, not, not, not overly. I mean, I kind of, um, to be, to be honest, it's a, it's a, it's been a, it's been a funny one for me, I think because the, um, because, you know, I'm a British journalist, but I write for the New Yorker, so I spend a lot of time kind of writing for an, an American audience. The book has yeah. kind of been has has been, you know, a, a minor hit in the UK, mm-hmm. if I can be so. Oh, be congratulations! So but it, oh, thanks. Um, and I think it connects to I don't know something about Britain in the '60s or something like that. But it's kind sure. of I think it's like it's yet it's yet to like find find its audience in America. So I'm really excited to be uh, to be to be speaking with you. But it should yeah it's out it's out there it's in the bookstores um, yeah. and you know so yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. That's awesome. And we're excited to help with that as well because it's, it's brilliant. Um, I I think, you you. know, one of my last questions is, uh, I can talk with you forever and I hope that you would grace us with your, you know, presence once again, I I think another conversation would be, was, would be brilliant. Um, but, but, you know, now that you've done the premonitions bureau and that you've, you know, kind of had your, uh, you know, your sort of feet in the paranormal waters 
Mm. Are there, do you feel like those are topics that either with the New Yorker or with the book that are, are subjects, uh, the strange, the unusual, maybe even the occult, are these topics that you think you would be interested and or currently planning on kind of writing more material in? Um, so not at the moment. I mean, I mean, I mean, one of these kind of delightful stroke you know scary phases where it's like am i am am i am i am i in a rut or am i kind of about to like uh-huh. find the new find the new thing um yeah. i i think that i i feel you know i've referred to it a few minutes ago i've 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 really enjoyed taking a subject that was you, you could treat it as the occult or the supernatural or you could treat it as a kind of as a piece of social history like one you know one of the one of the things that i touch on in the book is how until the 17th century visions and and second sight was just a very very common occurrence in the western islands of scotland and and i tried to write about the Premonitions Bureau a bit like it was an island off Scotland. You so saw just oh, a place where yeah. a place where it just wasn't that weird to uh-huh. see stuff before it happened. It was just part of the way that society and human minds function. To kind of in a sense to leave the question of whether this is possible at the door. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And just and 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 just and just write about a group of people in which like the curtain has parted do you see what i mean yeah, and oh, just yeah, what would that what and, and what what would that feel like that was that was what really excited me and 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 so i can definitely i can definitely imagine and would be excited to do that again yeah. uh, it's about kind of res, you know res, rescuing some of these stories from 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 people who've already made up their mind do you know what i mean yeah. and just and to and to and to have to look at them kind of fresh yeah <laughs> which is needed which is well needed <laughs> sam thank you so much my friend uh, oh, incredible totally to have pleasure. you on uh, appreciate your work with the premonitions bureau and uh, i look forward to chatting with you again i'd love that thanks jim thanks for your time yeah thank you so much cheers okay bye now bye bye